Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. Tonight I want to speak to you. Don't you listen to your radio? No, I'd like to talk to you tonight. I could listen to you talk all night. Welcome to the night. Mr. Bradley. Bradley Jason L. Next caller, you're on the air. While the others sleep. A little conversation. We will find you searching for WBZ, you're Jay talking. Mark Lavallo is your producer. Bradley J, your host. And Matt Schmidt joins us. Dr. Matt Schmidt, Associate Professor of National Security and Poli Sci at the University of New Haven and author of four books, including a, uh, a book about thinking like a general. <laughs> How do you do? Uh, I'm all right. Thank you very much. Tell me about that book that I just mentioned. Well, uh, it's in progress. I haven't. Uh, it's not published yet, and it uh, is based on work that I was doing at the School of Advanced Military Studies for the U.S. Army out in uh, Fort Leavenworth. It's the sort of the upper school of the command, the General Staff College, and it looks at developing high-performing planning teams, so operational and strategic planning teams, and uses um, uses a lot of techniques from uh, studio design, so studio art classes and architecture to help planning teams visualize and uh, communicate, uh, you know, complex uh, situations. You'll have to uh, contact us again when that book is finished. Absolutely. So you do lots, among other things, you do lots of military research. What kind of research and how does it get used? Uh, so that's the bulk of my, my work um, was doing planning and looking at how a field called behavioral economics, which if a uh, uh, if your uh, audiences uh, pay attention to that, the the, the key um, authors wrote a, a book called um, Thinking Fast and Slow a few years ago, which was, uh, I think it was a bestseller out there. Um, and so I used that work on human beings uh, falling into cognitive bias, uh, doing things like trying to assess the situation, but only taking the most easily available information to assess the situation and never asking is there more information that I don't have? And if I had it, would it change my view of the situation? So the kinds of things that, that get you into trouble into launching wars in places like Iraq when you, uh, you, you, you want to believe that Iraq was part of 9-11 and this kind of stuff, and you're, you're uh, misreading the evidence. And so I do uh, a lot of that work, and that's, that's how it gets used. All right. Now, since uh, Saudi Arabia and the Saudis, the Saudi-U.S. relationships in the news, can you describe this relationship? I only know it superficially. I'd be interested to know all, well, as many as we can squeeze in here, the, uh, the, the strings that attach us. <laughs> so, right. So, uh, Saudi Arabia is a fascinating question. You actually have to go back to, uh, to World War One, And, uh, if your listeners know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, right? The, uh, the British officer who was, uh, this, this, this polymath who, who spoke, various dialects of Arabic, uh, you know, fluently and this kind of stuff. Um, he 
is famous because he organized a series of tribes on the Arabian Peninsula, drove them into uh, north, up into Syria, and, and captured Damascus, um, but then was essentially betrayed by his own government uh, and by the French, who passed an agreement to divvy up what is today Syria, and Lebanon, uh, Israel, uh, Jordan, and parts of Saudi Arabia. And so the people that he worked with um, where he sort of organized these tribes on the Arabian Peninsula, they ended up losing, even though they won uh, in at the time uh, moving into Damascus. But when they lost, they lost to the, the family that was the House of Saud. And so Saudi Arabia is founded in the 1930s, 1932, I think. And we have had a relationship with them ever shortly after, um, because essentially what happens is that uh, Saudi Arabia captures the two most holy places in Islam, Mecca and Medina. Um, and the, the Saudis represent a branch of Islam called Sunni Islam, which is the largest branch. And it is opposed by the other side of Islam called Shia uh, Islam, which is in Iran. And so we have this curious situation where the U.S. is actually supporting Iran, um, in the 1950s, and we actually toppled the Iranian government, put in place our own guy, uh, and then we stationed troops in Iran, uh, and we set up an oil company to help pump oil out of Iran uh, for decades until the Iranian revolution in 79 kicks us out, and we suddenly become uh, enemies to Iran, and Saudi Arabia becomes one of our closest uh, allies. Uh, and then, of course, they have the largest production of oil uh, in the world. Actually, actually, that's not true. The United States produces more oil um, today than Saudi Arabia does, but it's sort of a, a fluke. And the most important thing is that Saudi Arabia can produce it much cheaper than anybody else. So the United States produces oil. Um, it's about $25 a barrel on average. And the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia can produce it at about $10 a barrel. So uh, they can afford to flood the market with a lot of their oil and then drive the price down to a range that puts other countries' oil under pressure, and, and they start losing money uh, when they produce, but Saudi Arabia continues to gain money. So that's sort of like the, the big thread that ties us in, right? First and foremost, it's Saudi Arabia controlling the price of oil on the world market. Secondly, it's now that Saudi Arabia is the strategic enemy of our strategic enemy, which is Iran, um, right now, and that Saudi Arabia um, holds down the two most holy places in Islam, and thus has a big, uh, big sway in places like Syria and um, and Iraq, where there's other there's complicated um, ethnic and religious issues there that are driving those conflicts. So, what do we get out of the relationship, and what do they get out of the relationship? <laughs> so, uh, we get oil, uh, but more than that, actually, we don't really use their oil, but other people get oil. And what we get is stability. So we use Saudi oil to stabilize prices in the world. Um, and we use Saudi Arabia to stabilize the region um, with their money um, and with the oil prices that they can sort of set. So they can help us or hurt us in places like Iraq or Syria or Iran. Why? And, Go and they, get, they get a lot of weapons from us. So we are providing them with billions of dollars worth of weapons. This has been in the news recently. Um, our weapons are being used to prosecute a war in Yemen right now. Yemen is an ally uh, with Iran. So uh, that's what's going on. So how much of what we get from Saudi Arabia could we get from Iran? Why, what would happen if we were more friendly to Iran? And, because the Iranians seem to be at their core, m much more like we are, and 
just waiting for a chance. It's like inside a, and every Iranian is an American trying to get out. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I have a, I have an uncle uh, who comes from Iran. And and friends from there also, um, and I can I can see very much what you're saying. The in terms of oil, we could get you know Iran can't produce like Saudi Arabia can, but it can have a major impact. But the the basic difference is is that Shia Islam is a much smaller um, population uh, of of Muslims than Sunni Islam, and uh, and in the end, Mecca and Medina are controlled by Saudi Arabia, so we can't get that with Iran. All right. Have we? Do we lose moral authority continuing to deal with the Saudis? Or do, and I guess the question I should have asked prior is: Do we have any at this point? <laughs> do we have any moral authority? Yeah, is that all gone? <laughs> oh boy, um, I think we've done a lot of harm to it, and the situation with the uh, Saudi journalist uh, Khashoggi is um, is um, is heartbreaking. Um, you know, we're all but certain uh, people, even like Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, on the Republican side, have said, you know, we believe that uh, he was murdered in the Saudi consulate by Saudi officials under the orders of MSB, Mohammed, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. And even Lindsey Graham is talking about imposing uh, sanctions. So I think if we don't do something, I think you have, you know, a few more days if. If, as uh, Secretary Pompeo says, you need to give the, the Saudis some time to sort of come up with a new story, um, that's fair. But I think after a few more days, then you're going to see a lot of push to do something, especially after the midterm election. Any chance that it was uh, the conservative Wahhabists that did it to embarrass a, you know, a family they felt was not being conservative enough? I don't really know enough about that level of detail to, to speculate on it. Um, what we do know is that Khashoggi was was uh, highly critical of MBS, um, basically said that he was not the reformer that he made himself out to be. Uh, and we know at this point uh, that uh, more than a handful of the 15 or so uh, people who are believed to be involved with uh, with the alleged murder are linked to uh, MS, MBS and the security services. Okay. So it, it, the, the the question now really is, can Mohammed bin Salman survive this scandal as the heir apparent, or uh, does he lose his chance at the throne now? Interesting. So. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The uh, gesticulations and cries of foul coming from the U.S. just hot air because we'll never do anything that we really will not impose sanctions on someone that is so we're so deeply involved with. Correct. I don't know. I mean, it's always surprising when Lindsey Graham is, is arguing for something like this. Uh, I mean, the other question is, you know, you don't have to impose them tomorrow. You could wait until after the elections and, and see what happens in the House and the Senate um, and, and impose them after uh, the new Congress is seated in January. Um, so, so Congress could legislate sanctions 
um, and force them on the president like they did with the Russian sanctions uh, a couple years ago. Okay, back to moral authority. Does it really matter, moral authority? Does it just feel good? Does it, does it really have anything to do with our power and our influence? I absolutely uh, believe that it does. Our, our core interest is in having as many democracies in the world as possible. Um, and we're, we're different that way because democracy itself is a moral interest, right? We don't believe that, that all governments are equal regardless of what kind of regime type they have. We believe that um, democratic representation is the only uh, moral way to govern a country. Uh, and so even with a place like, like Saudi Arabia, we work with these countries, but our, our long-term rhetoric has always been that we do this with the hopes that in time they will begin to liberalize and democratize their systems. And so I think that's a, it's an absolutely core American value. It helps explain how we behave um, in terms of foreign policy. And, uh, and when we, we're not consistent with how we follow it. Um, but in a case like this, where it seems like the violation is just uh, astoundingly uh, bald-faced, uh, I think it's quite problematic if we don't do something to stand up for those values. So it seems like our moral authority has been eroded. It seems to be what you say. How did it get eroded? What are some recent events, or <laughs> what are some recent events that have eroded it? Well, <laughs> excuse me. The uh, you know the current administration is unlike other administrations in the way that it talks about these things, uh, and so it's been been quite. Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, it, it's been been quite open with its Machiavellian tone when talking about, uh, say, the situation of Venezuela or any of the things that we have coming out of Russia. Uh, you know, uh, be it the uh, you know the annexation in Crimea or uh, the murders in the UK. Um, and those kinds of things, the arms buildup and these sorts of things. And so we have an administration that is extremely realpolitik and seems to accept that. And also with the language of you know, Saudi Arabia right now where the president is saying, hey, look, we have $100 billion in arms sales going on. What? It's one journalist, right? We have other interests to, to, uh, to deal with. Past administrations might have thought that. <laughs> Uh, and might have engaged in the end behind the scenes, uh, you know, trying to hang on to that $100 billion arms deal. But on the surface of things, it was important for them to condemn these kinds of behaviors um, and to sanction countries, you know, uh, at least in terms of rhetoric. And the current administration just hasn't done that. And so it has, it has sent a signal saying that uh, you can behave this way and the United States uh, will, you know, basically ignore it, even even come to your defense. I read that this whole... Saudi murder is a nightmare for Jerusalem and D.C. because it kind of throws a monkey wrench into their whole concept of the Middle East, uh, including countering Iran-Russia, that little block. Is that, can you explain that? Is that Yeah, so uh, right? Saudi Arabia is a hard place to love. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, the laws are strict. Uh, women weren't allowed to drive until this last year. Um, they like to cut people's hands off and behead them and things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a quite um, uh, barbaric justice system in many ways. And um, so when you need Saudi Arabia, if you're Israel, because you need Saudi Arabia's influence to calm uh, neighbors, 
uh, that are problematic for you, um, or you need Saudi Arabia to counterbalance Iran if you're the United States, or if you're Israel for that matter, or you need Saudi Arabia's oil production to stabilize uh, markets, uh, you don't want things that make it hard to love Saudi Arabia. And the apparent decapitation of a Washington Post journalist, right, in Turkey, um, apparently, right, allegedly on orders of the crown prince, makes it hard to love Saudi Arabia. So that means all of those issues that Saudi Arabia is an important player in now become complicated because the the um, impetus for a democracy like the U.S. or Israel is to now walk away, um, but that's difficult to do because you need Saudi Arabia for other reasons. So if that murder is a murder and it's government-sponsored, that's a government-sponsored attack on the United States. Well, so it's complicated, right? So the, the president comes out and says, well, he's not really an American, right? He was a, he was, um, a green card holder. Um, or he was, yeah, he was a resident, um, and he'd been here for a year. He left Saudi Arabia because he feared for his life, um, and he was granted um, asylum here, and he was working for the Washington Post. But technically, he was not an American yet, although he had some protection. So, so legally speaking, the president is saying, right, that, uh, well, he wasn't really an American, so, you know, it doesn't matter as much to us. Oh, I see. Mo- morally speaking, I don't think that's the right position because because uh, Khashoggi was clearly here as a resident. He was working for a major American newspaper, right? He was engaged in, in you know, the kind of free speech that our whole system supports. Okay. Um, now, does it burn the Saudis when we get pally with Russia? Because Russia's pally with Iran, their bitter rival. Uh, it, it does and it doesn't. So, again, there's the, the mediating influence here is oil uh, and gas. So, so Russia, depending on a given year, is you know, the first or the second largest producer of natural gas um, in the world. And they're, comp- and, and, then, and they're basically in the top three always on oil production. And so they're a major competitor with Saudi Arabia on both of those markets. Um, but, right, it, and, and so... But Saudi Arabia understands that you know we have to we have to it's complicated that on some things we're going to go against Saudi policy and other things we're going to be with them. But just that's the that's sort of the larger context that's always taking place with Saudi Arabia is what's going on in the oil and gas market. All right, now since we're there, we'll move into Russia if that's okay. Sure. This is um, a uh, an essay question. Explain <laughs> explain who Putin really is and how he got it's that a- way. The, right. In, in, <laughs> well, I refer you to the, the previous podcast. Yeah. Um, the short version of who Putin is and how he got that way is, is he was basically a tough street kid uh, out of St. Petersburg. His parents um, went through a lot of trauma in the Second World War, uh, where, where St. Petersburg was particularly uh, badly hit. It was, it was under siege for almost three years. Uh, there was mass starvation. Uh, you know, all of the pets were killed for food in the city. Um, these kinds of things, and so he grew up with a family that suffered a lot of trauma. Um, essentially, was passed down, and he he wasn't exactly homeless, but he was kind of a street kid. And uh, he grew up tough like that. Was recruited into the KGB early, uh, which is one of the things that the KGB does. Spent his formative years in Dresden, East Germany. Uh, Dresden is also a hellhole. Um, for those of you uh, who read uh, Slaughterhouse Five, that's about the bombing of Dresden in World War II. Uh, the city was obliterated by the Allies, by the U.S. Air Force, um, and hasn't really recovered even when when Putin was there. Uh, 
so he was there when the when the wall was coming down. He was recalled to Russia. Um, when the Soviet Union fell, he ended up as a deputy mayor in St. Petersburg, and then uh, many people believe began a series of um, corrupt deals that started to gather money for him and uh, and money from um, local area communist parties that needed to needed to get their money abroad and hide it as the as the Soviet Union was collapsing and they were afraid that they would lose the communist party would be outlawed and they would lose that money. And Putin's uh, German language skills and his experience uh, in the West put him in a position to launder a lot of that money. Uh, at least that's the view by a lot of people that I, I trust on this. And he started to make this money and then was um, was moved up the chain by Boris Yeltsin, who was the president, okay. the first president of a new Russia in the 90s. He became head of the KGB. And then Yeltsin uh, abdicated the presidency and handed it to Putin. I saw Active Measures, this documentary that spent substantial time showing that Trump Tower was a haven for such money laundering. How true is that? Uh, very true. Um, let me let me talk for a second about some of my other work that was um, last in, in the Hill um, newspaper right after the election in that December. Um, I published a piece sort of sketching uh, some things out that I, I, I cannot fully prove, but, but the thesis goes something like this. Um, there was a the, the largest money laundering case in U.S. history was about seven and a half billion dollars, um, and it was prosecuted in New York, and it was essentially all Russian money. A billion of that dollars was believed to have been laundered through the U.S. by the Georgian character. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That was in the, the infamous June Trump Tower meeting, just to, to draw that connection in. Right. Um, most of this went through a bank called the Republic Bank of New York. Um, there, there, there's all sorts of scandal around the, the death of the, uh, the, the, the man who ran the bank, the president of that bank back in 1998. Um, so all of this stuff is swirling. And in the nineties, the Russians basically are moving billions and billions of dollars, um, hundreds of billions of dollars out of the country and trying to, trying to clean it and park it in safe places. And there's basically two ways that you do this. If you want to move a lot of money that's relatively clean and, and whitewash it so that you can invest it elsewhere, you do real estate. And if you have really dirty money from things like drugs and prostitution, you use casinos because you're going to lose 80% of it in washing it in the casinos for all the payoffs and everything else, and you lose comparatively less in real estate, and you can move larger sums. That's essentially what has happened uh, with the apartments in the Trump Towers or the infamous uh, deal with the, uh, with the residents in, um, in Florida, that this money is being laundered uh, in, these, in these real estate and casino deals. And much of this was happening in the 1990s. Deutsche Bank, uh, who was Donald Trump's major um, lender, after all the other banks stopped lending to him uh, because of his bankruptcies in the 90s, which then paid off the largest, um, the largest settlements just a few years ago here, um, was the bank that helped 
move all of this money. And it was it was essentially the largest chunk of it was Russian money coming through Deutsche Bank, going to um, you know other places in the U.S. Almost certainly including the Trump Organization, although we don't have hard proof on that yet. Is your contention that uh, both Trump Tower condominiums and the casinos that Trump was involved at both those levels of laundering? My guess is is that that Trump is not a details man. Uh, and and so he doesn't understand uh, or know about the legal niceties that allow this to happen and where things are being shaded and where where laws are being flat out broken. That that is mostly in the realm of his um, his financial guru, whose name I'm I'm missing right now, who was uh, uh, indicted by um, Mueller just a few weeks ago. Okay, so I don't know if I commit a crime. Just saying uh, I'm not a details man doesn't really cover me. And how how is it possible that somebody can launder that much money and not get caught? And how is it possible that someone who did that could become president? How is it possible that someone who did that can stay president? I don't get it. <laughs> well, the first the first problem is is that uh right, laundering money implies that you can prove that the money was illegally gained in the first place. And when you're looking at Russia, especially in the 1990s, you don't even know what laws are in effect. Is, are the Soviet laws still in effect? Have they written new laws? Who's following what? And so, so proving that this is corrupt money, even though sort of everyone knows that it is, um, is, is a very different thing in a legal sense. Uh, what, was your, what was your second question? So, so can we prove that this happened you know, legally? That's, that's harder than, uh, than I think people realize. Uh, the second question is how do how you, you how become do you your... president with that yeah. be the case, and how do you stay president? And I guess the first answer answers the second two questions, the second two questions. Yeah. yeah that's I mean, not provable. You, don't, you can't prove it. But I would think you really could prove it. In the the documentary <laughs> Active Measures, they say that condominiums were being bought and sold without even any identification. Doesn't right? Is that that's how it works? Right. And doesn't but that break some? Isn't that kind of crimey? It is kind of crimey, but then you have the problem of of you know liars' loans, which a good chunk of Americans signed on you know before two thousand and eight also. Which is essentially the same kind of thing, and and uh, you know, is that a misdemeanor or a felony crime? And so there's all sorts of ways that you can you can skirt these things. I, I think something something crimey happened, uh, but whether or not you can you can prove this to a level of of your satisfaction is a different story. But that's why, you know, the Mueller investigation isn't is gathering a lot of this data. And I think that there's sort of there's three three big pillars to it, right? One is, is whether or not there was collusion um, on on interfering in the campaign, right? Yeah. The second one is whether or not there was obstruction of justice uh, against the Mueller investigation about interfering with the campaign. And the third branch of this stuff is all of the financial uh, crimes or the potential financial crimes that uh, for which he may have sucked up information in the process of, of doing everything else here. Is that, and that's the, sec that's the part that we both have the most information about out in the public, but there's so much and it's so confusing that we don't have a clear picture of it. Seems like the, the incidents and the volume of money is so great that at some point, some, legal, some pretty major legal lines get crossed somewhere. And at some point, there could be some email that proves some of that money from Russia is illegal. I, I'm curious. What do you think is going to happen with the Mueller report when it happens? Oh, that's uh, not a question of, of uh, Russia stuff. That's a question, I think, of American politics, right? So, 
so we've heard just just in the last day, right? We've started to hear some some rumblings. Uh, I think from Bloomberg that uh, that Rosenstein, the the deputy attorney general, has been is pushing Mueller to release parts of his report as soon as he can after the midterms. Um, we don't know what parts those are. Uh, probably the obstruction uh, sections. And the thing is, is that whatever reports that Mueller releases actually only go to Rosenstein. Um, and then there's a complex. Uh, series of laws that determine whether or not that information essentially is released by Congress in a more public sense. What if there's um, a crime? So, it can be covered up by Rosenstein. Well, it's because it's 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 not a crime, right? It's a it's a report that goes to him, and and he has to take that report and then decide as a prosecutor what to do with it. So he could decide to prosecute based on Mueller's information, but Mueller's information in and of itself. It's not. Uh, it's not a, a prosecution. It's just evidence well, suggesting. Right. If it shows a crime, can Rosenstein cover it up? Uh, I, I, he could try, <laughs> and and it's possible that he could keep the information out for a while. I don't believe he would keep it, the information out for long. Someone in Congress, especially uh, since the House is likely to flip to the Democrats, would put pressure on him to release that information. And I think that Rosenstein doesn't want to cover it up. He sort of would be happy to have somebody force him to release the information. Would they any chance they'd just leak it? Oh, I think there's a great chance of that. <laughs> yes. All right. Does Russia want to destroy the U.S.? <laughs> I mean, you know, probably not. Um, it would be bad for them. It's sort of like, oh, what do we do if that happens? Uh, they want to embarrass us. They want to strengthen themselves. Um, but I don't think they want to wipe us off the So map. they just want to be reasonably the boss? Yeah, Putin is a complicated character. He wants to basically make Russia great again. Where did we hear that before? And he has a vision of Russia sort of achieving world historical, you know, greatness. But you know, a, you know, a few decades or a century from now. But he's willing to do a lot to push it in the direction right now. Sacrifice a lot of lives and a lot of the the, the economy and the standard of living. So, how does what he does online destabilize? for example, us, and how does that help him? So part of what is going on with, with Putin is that when he embarrasses us, it makes him look good in front of his own population, uh, whom he has basically brainwashed because he has systematically murdered journalists, much like apparently happened with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, such that he has control of the media in Russia, and there, there's really no opposition voice. So he can paint the picture of his own policies as he wishes. Uh, so when he does that in the U.S., just by creating chaos and, and even just by having uh, you know, something like the Trump administration in power, uh, every time it bumbles around, it makes him look better. But secondly, he can, he can actually achieve policy victories in places like uh, Syria right, or Iran if he's able to use um, essentially information warfare on the public to get them to vote for candidates, vote for, for, for candidates like Trump or for Senate or, or House candidates that essentially you know, don't care about things like promoting democracy or these, these sorts of things that we've seen before and allow American officials to behave in a way that they haven't normally behaved in, behave in a way that's much more callous than you normally see in American politics. So why did uh, Putin hate Clinton's so much, particularly Hillary, and why did he work to get Trump in power because it, he would be bumbly and make him look good? Well, uh, so I think the first 
the first answer is is that if he could get anyone in power, the fact that he got them in power gives him strength. Okay. Right. Secondly, he hated Hillary in particular because as Secretary of State, he believed that she uh, played a big role in, in, the, in the Ukrainian revolution that toppled the pro-Russian government there in 2014, uh, and that she was trying to do the same thing to topple his own regime by promoting democracy in Russia. Right. So he had a, a particular hatred for her. So she, she had one of her top people over in the Ukraine giving out sandwiches and stuff to the protesters, so, and, and she, right. was, she was on camera, and all. she wasn't secret or anything. Right. Okay. Now, would uh, Russia annex the Baltics? Uh, someday, if Putin could get them back, uh, like when they were in the Soviet Union, I think he would, but not now. He's going to threaten that. He'll he'll fly bombers and, and do military exercises, but he understands that that would be a, a step too far. That would It would draw NATO in, and it would he would lose. So he's not going to do that anytime soon. Well, they didn't do much with, with Ukraine. Would they really do anything with the Baltics? Would they just, you know, what are you really going to do? Well, it's different. So the Baltics are actually in NATO. Ukraine is not. Um... And and that's that's the biggest thing. So legally, an invasion of Ukraine, uh, invasion of the Baltics would would trip Article Five, and would require us by that to to react. And I believe that we would. Um, Ukraine is different. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have any real interest in Ukraine. We do have philosophical interests. We want it to be democratic. We have an interest in promoting democracy there because the Russian-speaking, uh, you know, democratic population there is ultimately going to be the, the, the Russian-speaking democratic population that influences Russia to eventually end Putinism as a style of government and sort of the mafia control in, in Russia. Okay. Could they really take down our power grid, those Russians? Unknown. So you're here in Connecticut, uh, the people here have been at the forefront of looking at that question, and they say that, uh, that it is possible. I don't think you could take down the whole power grid, but you could cause a lot of trouble. Um, the truth is I'm not sure anybody really knows because the system is such a patchwork. Um, on the one hand, you could take down a lot of it, but it's so broken in so many ways that it, it might stop. The hack reaches parts of the system that are so old, hacking doesn't affect it. How about their sub-capability? Are they ramping that up? Do they have the wherewithal to do that? Yeah, yeah, they're doing all that stuff. They're running around, um, spending a lot of money on that. And what they're doing is they're, they're sniffing around all the undersea cables, uh, you know, that they could, they could, you know, shut down internet and things like that. Um, it's a real threat. Those things right now are just basically a lot of stuff for show. It's it's Putin again spending billions of dollars to build the capability to force us to respond to his capability. But if he actually tried to do something, it would hurt him worse. Um, but there's a political benefit, again, in, in doing it this way, right, in, in building the sub, deploying the sub, moving it about provocatively around Internet cables and forcing us to reactivate the, you know, the Atlantic fleet and things like that. Um, so that's, it's, it's the old game. It's the old Soviet game. Okay. The president says, what's so, what's so terrible about being pals with Russia? What is so terrible about it? <laughs> Uh, Russia does not have any of our interests, uh, doesn't, doesn't share our interests in, in pretty much in any way. Uh, Putin is an, is an absolute authoritarian leader. He does terrible things like assassinate uh, journalists. Uh, he essentially has a, a gulag system, uh, again, in, the, in Siberia, in the prisons. Is that why um, Trump likes him? Because he assassinates journalists? I'm serious. And because he has a gulag system? Yeah, no. So here's the thing. I think Trump is squeamish. I don't think Trump likes to hear things about the details of, of you know, uh, Khashoggi's murder. He, he, he doesn't do well with that. 
Um, he doesn't like the realpolitik of, of having to order people to kill um, or, or have people die uh, on his watch as, as commander-in-chief. So I think he really hates that stuff, but he thinks that he has to like it in sort of a TV movie way. Okay. And, and that's why he likes Trump. He likes that sense of resolve. Or that's why he likes Putin. Because Putin is kind of a movie character. Yeah. All right. And I talked about the transatlantic cables. And, okay. Just, um, can you comment on, I guess this is political. What kind of political damage or even or help is it when the president talks about love letters to uh, Korea and how he fell in love with them and all that? Was, was, you know, how bad is that? Or maybe not bad at all? I think that, that these things have... Uh, a deleterious effect, but that they're slow moving. I think that the real effect of the Trump administration and these kinds of uh, these kinds of things, like the letters or the sucking up to Putin or that awful press conference uh, when he was visiting uh, with Putin in Helsinki, that that these things are really going to hurt us a decade from now, because what this administration has done is shown the rest of the world that they can't trust the political or moral stability of the United States. And that they have to now start to um, adjust their policies to assume that someone like uh, Trump could come to power again and not back them up in the Baltics or not back them up, um, you know, in Israel or something like that. And and so it's when everybody else starts moving and doing other things like deciding, well, we have to, you know, rearm ourselves um, or change our trade agreements in order to prevent – in order to protect against the possibility that the United States is going to violate – these norms that it's been following for decades, that's when you see the world order start to start to shatter. So it's, it's starting now, but I, I think it's really bad in 2030. Is Trump a one-and-done style leader, or, I mean, will there be another person like him, or have we learned lessons that will prevent uh, no, that? No, I, I, I think that Trump has changed the politics in the U.S., and I think um, from here on out, you're going to have a character like Trump in our electoral system. You're going to have a presidential character that sort of plays that role, both on the left and the right. That has to be um, a larger-than-life showman kind of character um, in order to get elected. Just and I, for, and I don't think that's a good thing. Just for giggles, can you see anybody on the left that would be that kind of person other than Alec Baldwin? Yeah. Uh, I can't right now. I mean, that's the question on the left, right, is who, who's going to run in 2020? Uh, I don't see that, but I would. but he would be the type – and and I and I do think that there's a serious possibility that you have someone coming out of the entertainment world, um, picking up the mantle and trying to run in 2020. Now, Steve uh, Bannon was afraid of Oprah. Did you have you read that? He was seriously yeah, yeah. thinking that Oprah, if she ran, could take down Trump. Oh, I think that's a real possibility. Um, yeah, there's no question. She has more star power than Trump does, um, and she's a serious person. Right. So uh, and likable, right? So she she would be a great candidate in in any number of ways. Because you don't have to know how to do everything. All you need to do is find people who know who knew know how to do everything. Yeah. Okay. And she'll she'll put people around her um, that are competent. Yeah. How much of a deal is it if Mattis goes? Whew. He was the, the who replaces the, him. <laughs> he was adult, He was supposed to be the adult in the room, and he kind of was. Uh, and the president didn't like having an adult in the room, so. Is that is that a crucial thing if Mattis gets fired? It, it depends on who replaces him, but yes, it would be deeply concerning. I, I don't think that 
uh, you know, Mattis uh, is enjoying the job. I think he feels that it's a sense of duty. I think it's the same way with John Kelly. It was the, the, the same way with H.R. McMaster, who was the national security advisor for a while, that these people sort of stepped up um, to play the role to sort of stabilize the republic. Um, so I think it's a big deal if he goes. Okay. I, I really do. But I think he's going to try to fight it because he thinks it's his duty to stay. Right. He's one of the group of people that stay to protect the American people from the president's worst impulses. Yeah. All right. Which is what he is accused of saying. <laughs> okay. Now, China. We didn't even talk about China. So, you China. know, the moment I talk about China, we only have a very short time because you're such an excellent guest. Uh, is this the sunset of the United States as the dominant power? Oh, that is the great question in the field of foreign policy. Uh, it might be, but it's slow, and there's always second and third chances. So in a lot of ways, yeah, the answer is yes, uh, that, that the rise of China is, is basically unstoppable unless you decide to wage a major war, which we would lose um, uh, in the sense that it would cost us more than it would cost them. Uh, we're just a smaller population and things like this. But China has a long way to go, and, and the, the problem that China faces is, is that they're going to, uh, they're going to as the saying goes, uh, get gray before they get rich. And so the purchasing power of the average Chinese is still well below the average American. Um, but given that there's, you know, 400 million, uh, you know, middle class Chinese, even if it is well below the average American, that equals a, a very large economy. Um, the problem is, is that because of the one child policy and other things, you're going to have a, a huge chunk of the population aging out at mid-century. And it's unclear if the Chinese government is going to be able to handle that in terms of health care, um, retirements, things like that. Final question. What makes them so successful? What, do they lack restraints? Or, you know, do, they, do they not have restraints on them that we do that keep us from being as successful? I mean, they're going well, gangbusters. They successful? It's a lot. That's a big word. Yeah, okay. Well, they're doing very well. What's the secret? In some sense, I think that's that's right, that they don't have the same kind of regulatory uh, standards that we do so they can experiment um, and, and try stuff and pollute things and, and uh, you know, kill people and things like that, that that, uh, that more than we can, right? Uh, and, and then they have a command economy. So the government can just say, we're going to make this efficient, uh, you know, hyper-fast uh, train route, and we're going to literally move towns to do it. And they just command it, and it gets done. Right. Uh, in the United States, it takes 20 years of uh, you know hearings and lawsuits to do it. Um, so democracy is slow and inefficient in the short term, okay. but in the long term, I think it wins out. Man, you are a great, great guest, and you know you're fun and smart, and you can come back anytime. Seriously, anytime you think I should tell Bradley J's audience about this, you can you can certainly come on. Thank you, sir. My pleasure, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, Bye. Dr. Matt Schmidt over there at the University of New Haven, Associate Professor of National Security and Political Science, and they are very, very lucky to have that guy. Very lucky. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.